I enjoyed that, that little nod. Thank you, Justin. That was, <laughs> that was uh, very affirming of my coming up here. Good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. And it's, it's great to see so many people out and to see quite a few who I haven't seen in a long time. So that with each passing week on every Sunday, it seems like there's reconnecting that's happening uh, as we trust the pandemic ebbs. This morning, we're continuing our series in Daniel, as you've already heard. One way you can look at the first three chapters of this book is that they are the story of two kings, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and the King of Heaven, the God of Israel. As chapter four begins, and that's where we're picking up the story today, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is still resisting the true king as he has been since the beginning. And so this chapter is God's final confrontation with him. And after this, he disappears from the story. Let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak your words of eternal life to us? These are just words on a page until you impress them on our hearts, until you seal them in our minds, until you, by your grace, transform us. So we long for that. We long for more of you, Jesus. Come among us today. Amen. So we're reading through Daniel chapter 4. And I'm going to paraphrase some parts. It's a long reading, um, so I'm going to take a few liberties that way. If you've got your Bible open, you can find out where I've done that. If you don't, you just have to trust me, I guess. It starts with an address. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. Think of this as a post on social media. He's telling all the nations. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So here he's reflecting what he has come to realize is true about the God of Israel in the preceding three chapters. Slowly but surely, he's getting there. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. But then I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So, as was his custom, Nebuchadnezzar called in all the wise men of Babylon to interpret his dream, but none of them could do it. And we've seen this before, right? Except this time, he doesn't demand that they tell him his dream as well as interpret it. We can guess that the wise men were probably terrified because Nebuchadnezzar was inclined to cut people into pieces and turn their houses into rubble. That was kind of his trademark. That was his thing. But Daniel has never been afraid of speaking truth to the king. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, continues Nebuchadnezzar, and I told him the dream. There before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. 
It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. But then Nebuchadnezzar said, while I was admiring this tree, a messenger from heaven came down and proclaimed, cut down the tree and chop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him, and here it switches from it to him. So the tree is a person, maybe? Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times or seven years pass by for him so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Daniel was deeply troubled and asked Nebuchadnezzar not to make him interpret this dream. He said to the king, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar replies, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. He's saying, just, just tell me. And so Daniel said, Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. So Daniel told the king that God had issued a decree from heaven that because of his pride and his sins, he, like the tree, was going to be cut down. He goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice, Daniel said to the king. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel pleaded with the king to repent, to turn to God. But Nebuchadnezzar did not. And so we read, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what he had said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. God had given Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent. 
And this is after four chapters of warnings and signs, answers to prayer, the miraculous interpretation of dreams, the remarkable courage and testimony of four extraordinary young men. But then one day came when Nebuchadnezzar crossed the line and God said, that's it, enough. And the final verse of this chapter sums it up. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Back in the summer, I heard about a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. I was driving a lot. I was driving around a lot during the month of August, and so I thought I'd check it out. And I loved it. It was, it was really uh, fun and educational, I guess. And I learned that Mark Driscoll started Mars Hill Church in Seattle in 1996. He was this edgy, talented 25-year-old, and the church grew quickly. In 2008, it was called the fastest-growing church in America and soon hit an average weekly attendance of 15,000 people and expanded to 13 sites in Washington State and beyond. But its online reach went even farther as half a million people were watching or downloading Driscoll's sermons and hundreds of churches were playing them on screens each Sunday morning. Driscoll became the most visible and popular leader of a movement dubbed the Young, Restless, and Reformed. So yeah, this guy was a Presbyterian too. Maybe not your typical Presbyterian church. Mars Hill was ambitious. It founded a thriving church planting network held conferences all over North America, and hosted the most popular Christian resource website. It had become an empire. And then everything fell apart. Starting in 2007, the leaders of the church began rewriting its bylaws to give Driscoll more and more power. Anyone who objected was fired, and the church actually had a policy that those people should be shunned as well. More and more people began coming out of the woodwork and complaining about abuses of power at Mars Hill. In 2014, Driscoll was found guilty of bullying and of patterns of persistent sinful behavior by the elders themselves, who created a restoration plan to help him and to save Mars Hill Church. But he refused to participate and he resigned so the podcast is this really fascinating reflection on the church in North America right now and over the last 50 years, particularly the evangelical church, and of the way we worship success. Someone came up to me after the, the talkback session we held after the service last Sunday, and, and I'd mentioned this podcast, and, and he said, could we start a discussion group about that? So if you're interested in that, let me know, because we're, we're thinking about it. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar suffers from a bad case of success, and God is going to deal with him. The real problem here is pride. And as the chapter ends, as we come to see, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. C.S. Lewis calls pride the root sin the sin that is at the root of all the others, that gives birth to all sins. Pride is at the very heart of the human predicament. From King Nebuchadnezzar to Mark Driscoll, it has ruined us. 
Last week, again, during talkback, someone asked, so where's Babylon today? Like, what's our Babylon in 2021? And, you know, we tried to give a couple of answers. But my final answer, you always come up with these three days too late, right? My final answer is that Babylon is us. It's in our hearts, every one of us, the spirit of Babylon. You might say, as this chapter addresses our pride and really cuts to the core spiritually of of our struggles, that its message is that defeat is difficult, but success can be deadly. Defeat is difficult for us, but our success can be so much deadlier. This morning, we're going to ask three questions about pride. First of all, what is the source of pride? Where does pride lead? And how can we deal with our pride? Is there a cure for it? Pride begins when we no longer see that every good thing comes from God. In verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So God says, I am going to teach you, Nebuchadnezzar, that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. You think you did all this, but actually God is in charge. He raises people up and brings them down. Every talent you have, every breath you draw, every ounce of strength is a gift from him. But we don't believe that in our culture, do we? What we believe is that you are what you make of your life. We believe in the myth of the self-made individual. Many of us look at what we have and say, I worked for all this. I earned it. And I'm not saying that's entirely bad, but it's also not true, really, ultimately. You did not control the biggest factors that led to whatever success you enjoy, like where or when you were born, the education you received, the society you grew up in, the influences and models that inspired you, the people who helped you along the way. Even the genes that gave birth to your abilities were gifts from your parents. You took all the gifts that God gave you and you merely built on them. Second thing is that pride comes from the foolish assumption that our achievements will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar was, at that time, the most powerful man in the world by far. We talked about this the first Sunday of this series. Historians say that no more than five people in all of human history have enjoyed the power and status that he had. Babylon was the capital of the known world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Herodotus, a contemporary historian who visited Babylon at that time, said that never in his life had he seen such an abundance of gold. There was gold everywhere. And some scholars have concluded that Nebuchadnezzar built the whole city as a hanging terraced garden, a marvel of architecture and technology. His palace had a 400-foot-high waterfall, and he had made Babylon virtually impregnable. He built a wall around the city that stretched for 56 miles, and in many places was over 80 feet high, 
over 80 feet wide and over 300 feet high. They even raced chariots on the tops of those walls. If anyone should have felt good and totally secure about the future, it should have been Nebuchadnezzar, right? But no, he was anxious and afraid. You may think you're doing pretty well in your life right now. But then everything can change in an instant. We've seen that over the last couple of years with the pandemic, like never before collectively as a society. Some of you have also gone through this more personally. Maybe you heard those devastating words, you've got cancer. Maybe it happened through your spouse telling you that she or he was done with the relationship, the marriage. Maybe something happened to one of your kids. Maybe, like with Nebuchadnezzar, it's happening through mental illness, through a health challenge. The human body is so delicate, so fragile. As a society, we don't realize how precarious our prosperity really is. At any time, an earthquake, an asteroid, a one in a million chance that will come, a solar flare could destroy life on Earth completely. Or something less dramatic. Financial markets get disrupted. They rise and fall, and sometimes they crash. The right set of factors can lead to that with the result that people who had it all, billionaires, suddenly are jumping out of windows. Part of Satan's lie in the Garden of Eden was to say to Adam and Eve, you surely will not die. He whispered it to them, and he does the same thing for us. He whispers in our ear that death is not really certain. He makes us forget about it. Live for the here and now. Pride arises from the failure to recognize everything, everything, every breath you take is a gift from God. And it arises from the foolish assumption that what you have will last forever. But Nebuchadnezzar also demonstrates for us where pride can lead. First of all, we see really obviously in this passage, it leads to boasting. Nebuchadnezzar's language is filled with it. I, 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 he says, my kingdom, my city, my glory, my majesty. And that's the surest sign that you are consumed with pride. But the irony is that you may not even know it. And yet, it's obvious to everyone else around you. C.S. Lewis says that pride is a funny disease because those who suffer the most from it aren't aware of it, but they make everyone else around them sick. And that's why we need each other. That's why it's impossible for us to address our pride without having people you can be honest with around you who can speak into your life, who can challenge you. In Mere Christianity, Lewis writes, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or when they patronize me or show off? 
The point is, he continues, that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at that party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Pride is competitive by its very nature. I love that big noise reference. We all have sat in a corner while someone was being the big noise, right? And just the, and we blame them, but our resistance, our anger at them is a greater pride. How much does other people's boasting, other people's putting themselves forward bother you? That is a sign that you wrestle with pride. Pride also leads to entitlement. You feel like you deserve things. You've worked hard. The world and God owe you success. And that may mean that you have a hard time being content with what you have. And you are bitter and resentful and jealous about what others have. All because you think you are owed good things. Pride says, look at what I've done. I worked hard. I sacrificed, I did something good, whatever that is. You know, we all have that thing we come back to. Well, there's this. And it can be a little thing and yet still be setting pride. And so we conclude, I deserve rewards, glory, praise, appreciation, a simple thank you, just a simple thank you. That's all I'm asking for. Money, rest, a break. I've worked so hard, so many hours. When things go well, pride says, that makes sense. After all, I did something right. I deserve this house, this relationship, that person's forgiveness, love, all these friends, this job. Thank me. When things go badly, pride says, this isn't fair. This is not right. Pride blames others, gets angry. Poor me. By contrast, when things go well for humility, humility says this is a gift. This is by God's grace. Thank God. And when things go badly, humility says God is with me, shaping me, which is good because I really need it. Again, Thank God. Pride leads to entitlement. Humility leads to gratitude. Entitlement can also blind you to blessings that are staring you right in the face. Here's how someone described herself in an ad looking for a date. So this is a portrait someone's presented to themselves hoping to meet that special someone. Strikingly beautiful. That's how it opens. Ivy League graduate. Playful, passionate, perceptive, elegant, bright, articulate, original in mind, unique in spirit. I possess a rare balance of beauty and depth, sophistication and earthiness, seriousness and a love of fun. Professionally successful, perfectly capable of being self-sufficient and independent, but I won't be truly content until we find each other. Please reply with a substantial letter describing your background and who you are. A photo is essential. 
First of all, can you imagine being this person's friend? <laughs> you have to be on your guard every second. But the point is that this person's sense of entitlement probably keeps her from considering a lot of guys who would have been great marriage partners. And our sense of entitlement, and all of us have it, keeps us from genuine friendships with people we may look down on or disregard, from enjoying greater blessings than the ones we think are the ones that matter, giving up on opportunities because we don't hear God calling us to take them, to seize them, because we're so full of who we are and what we deserve that we miss God's blessings right in front of us. Pride also leads us to a cold heart. And this is where I think Daniel's saying the rubber hits the road for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel pleads with the king, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Maybe then your prosperity will continue. So another sign of pride is that you don't care about the needs of other people. Nebuchadnezzar was a cruel man. In 2 Kings 25, it tells us that when he captured Jerusalem, he took the Jewish king Zedekiah prisoner and he killed both of Zedekiah's sons right in front of him. And then he gouged out his eyes so that that would be the last thing Zedekiah ever saw. And then he took him off to Babylon. So it's significant that Daniel puts repentance in terms of a new attitude towards the poor. Being kind to the oppressed here, literally in the original language, in the Aramaic, means to show favor to, to make lovely, or to complain for. That last one, to complain for, means that we get out in public with our privilege and we complain on behalf of those who are in need. Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to complain on behalf of the poor. The sign of humility is that your sense of entitlement has been replaced by desire to help others, to lift them up, not to get more for yourself. No longer do other people exist for your benefit, but you exist to come alongside them, to be, you are blessed to be a blessing to others. Isaiah puts it like this, he says, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Your peace, your wholeness, your healing even, comes as you take up that calling, as you help the poor, as you live out your faith. So we've seen sources of pride. We've seen where pride leads us into some dark places. How can we deal with our pride? Is there a cure for pride? Well, sometimes God has to knock you down to get your attention. That's been my experience anyway. Failure by itself isn't enough. The Holy Spirit has to call you in the midst of that failure and produce renewed faith in you. Nebuchadnezzar was insane for seven years, and only then did God restore his sanity. God puts suffering in your life and then gives you eyes to see and calls you to look up toward heaven. And we read, At that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. And that phrase, 
connotes repentance. It's a certain gaze. It's a certain way he's looking at heaven. And my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's it. That's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. All those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. It's true of you too. Defeat is difficult, but success can be deadly. Do you feel defeated right now? Disappointed? Don't feel sorry for yourself. Turn to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to renew you, to reshape you. Are you successful in your life at the moment? Don't let it blind you to your pride and your complacency toward God. Nebuchadnezzar's final statement that I just read is one of the most incredible declarations of humility anywhere in the Bible. And we have much to learn from it. God used the faithful witness and courage of four Hebrew refugees to humble and wake up the most powerful wicked man in the world. How about you? Has he humbled you in your pride? Are you ready to listen? The worst would be to enter eternity unhumbled. For God to wake you up through some tragedy is nothing compared to facing his judgment if you enter his presence in the end without having repented. Today is Halloween, but October 31st, I like to remind people, is also Reformation Day. I wasn't sure I was going to include this in the sermon, but when we were praying and talking before the service, the worship team really, really, really wanted it. <laughs> Reformation Day commemorates the anniversary of Martin Luther going up to the door of Wittenberg Castle Church and hammering his theses, which were his complaints about injustice in the church to the door. It took one faithful individual to speak God's truth to the powers of that time, the church in Rome, and then, of course, generations of others, faithful, both Protestant and Catholic, down through the centuries. Luther, as a Catholic monk, had to wrestle with his pride and anxiety, and he tried to do that by working harder, by being better, in the end, the Holy Spirit opened his heart and his eyes to see that it was all about God's grace. He came to realize there is no condemnation in Christ. And God used him to bring renewal and reformation to the church. And so this chapter is not just a message to us as individuals that our pride 
is besetting and we need to address it. But it's a call to us as a whole church to do likewise, to address our pride, to proceed as courtright, as this community of believers, repentant, humble, noticing the ways that we're boasting. Jesus is the only true king, the only ruler of the world. And even though he lived perfectly, even though his pride was justified, God drove him into the wilderness of suffering for our illegitimate pride and our rebellion. He died on a cross because of our sin. He died like a beast, like the beast we read that King Nebuchadnezzar became. He's the true king and he can save you, but you have to come to him. So now God is shaking you in one way or another, shaking you in his mercy out of his kindness. He's not trying to punish you for your sin. He is not against you, as we sang earlier. He's trying to wake you up. Will you listen? Will we listen? As with Nebuchadnezzar, he calls out to you to repent, to renounce your sins, to surrender to King Jesus, and to begin to live, putting the interests of others first, to live in love and mercy and service towards those who God brings into your path. Thanks be to God for his calling and for his grace. Amen.